There's a saying from a teacher uh, from India named Srinazargadatta Maharaj that I think um, embodies the two different practices of vipassana and metta that I like a lot. So I'd like to share it with you. He said that love tells me I'm everything and wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. And I've always felt that this is all we really need to know. We're doing a practice that is a mirror that teaches us uh, through doing the practice that love tells me I'm everything. And the understanding that we get from doing the practice is that we're not separate, that yes, we're born and this cord that gets cut and there's this perception or misperception that we have of being separate. Uh, and by doing this practice, we tend to start opening up to this experience of this interconnectedness. The barriers start to melt between ourself and ourselves and between us and all other beings. This understanding that we get that we're not separate is the truth. You know, the sense of being separate is uh, a misperception. The other phrase, love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, often the understanding that where um, that, that all experience has an insubstantialness to it, that it's essentially empty, uh, is something that you get slowly through the mindfulness practice. We tend to start see that, to see that what we take to be a separate solid self isn't um, so solid. And if you look closely at experience itself, it tends to start um, to dissolve. So the Vipassana practice is more of a dissolving practice, and the Metta practice is more of a um, cohesive practice. And ultimately, with the mindfulness practice, we'll start to see that nothing is worth holding on to, and that the understanding just keeps deepening from seeing so clearly uh, that there's uh, nothing solid to hold on to. I find that the metta practice, the sense of uh, unconditional love, creates a container to uh, allow us to relax into the emptiness. Often when people experience the Vipassana or seeing so clearly that there isn't much solid, there's often a, a fear of a sense of hollowness or dread of the nothingness. And I think it's often because we don't have any container of metta to hold that experience. So we found in teaching the loving-kindness practice that that container of metta is so important or people have a great fear of this emptiness. There's a, there's a fear that it, it's hollow rather than pregnant. So both the Vipassana and the Metta practice are 
extraordinary but different mirrors to see ourselves in and to see life in on deeper and deeper levels. The Vipassana practice, we're developing momentary concentration. And the momentary concentration allows us to be mindful of life as it changes. We're aware of our moment-to-moment experience, which is changing constantly. And this being able to be in the present moment with life as it is, it leads towards an understanding or wisdom. The loving-kindness practice that we're doing is called a fixed concentration rather than momentary concentration. So instead of being mindful of our moment-to-moment experience, we're being mindful of loving-kindness itself. The metta is the fixed object. And you've heard us talking about how in uh, loving-kindness practice, if a body sensation calls the attention, if you can, you ignore it and you come back to the metta. If a sound happens, you try to ignore it, you go back to the metta. In Vipassana, it's just the opposite. If a sound calls the attention, you go to it and explore it. If an emotion calls the attention, you go to it and explore it. In metta, it's the exact opposite. You, you keep staying with this fixed concentration, fixed concentration. And this, there's different things that that leads to. It leads to the ability to receive unconditional love. It leads to the ability to send unconditional love. It leads to breaking down the barriers between oneself and others. And it also is a concentration practice. So the concentration leads to a a unification of the body and mind with all things. Love tells me I'm everything. There's a sense of being held together or contained. There's a stillness. There's a, a deep tranquility. With both practices, we need concentration. We need concentration to be in the present moment and to explore what's happening. Um, And for example, if we're trying to be with the movement of the breath and to experience the sensations within that movement, it takes concentration to be able to aim the attention to that movement and then to connect the attention with that movement and then you have to have enough concentration to sustain it. Uh, So you have that aiming, connecting, and sustaining Uh, And that's the only way we can see clearly. But as you can see, the breath is moving. It's not staying still. So there has to be an ability to have this momentary concentration that can uh, move with life as it is. So you have just enough concentration in Vipassana practice uh, to then have the mindfulness with the movement. In the metta practice, as you can see, there's this ability just to bring the attention to whatever person or being that we're doing. There's that being able to um, hold the person, oneself or other, and then to be able to say the phrases, and then to mean the phrases. That's the same thing as aiming it, connecting, sustaining with the breath. You're aiming it, connecting, sustaining it with the person. 
with both practices, when there's not much energy and the concentration is low, we're much more susceptible to what the, uh, is called the hindrances. The hindrances are the obstacles to the understanding or um, the metta. The hindrances, most of you know, you probably have them memorized. <laughs> uh, hindrances are sleepiness, doubt, aversion, restlessness, attachment to sensual pleasure. When concentration is happening, the hindrances aren't there. The hindrances are neutralized. And so that feeling that happens through concentration is called seclusion, because we're secluded or protected from the hindrances. And it, it feels great. You know, you know that sense when the, the hindrances aren't there, uh, you can really be here with the metta or the, the mindfulness. It's, it makes it possible to be here in the moment. So in the metta practice, we're not directly being aware of the hindrances unless they overcome us. In, in Vipassana, if a hindrance came up like sleepiness, you'd bring your attention to it and be aware of it. In metta, you ignore it and you keep going with the metta if you can. With all the hindrances, um, you're not paying to them directly as they appear. You know, they're, we're, in the Vipassana practice, you develop an ease or a balance with them as they move in and come out. In the metta, you kind of hold them at bay. And then there's a certain point where they kind of clobber you. They <laughs> wham. Uh, you feel like you fall out of heaven into the hindrances. And I think of the metta practice as kind of more like a roller coaster ride. It's like, woo, concentrated, not concentrated, down. You know, it's a real up and down. When I first did it, I felt like um, I would be disoriented when I would fall out of the concentration. You know, because I w- you're not used to saying, oh, aversion, or oh, yeah, sleepiness. There isn't that direct link to the mindfulness of the present moment, you're mindful of the metta. So when the hindrances come up, at first there isn't always that fluidity of balance of just, oh yeah, being mindful. Sometimes it it takes, it's like there's a jet lag. We're not quite up with that momentary concentration. But I think you'll find that over the days you kind of get used to that little bit of disorientation when the hindrances come up. And then finally, if you can't uh, hold them at bay, we open to them and we do the vipassana. So that's, it's not like that's a failure, it's more just the concentration is going down and then one has to do the mindfulness practice at that point to, to deal with whatever is there with the hindrance. So it t- sometimes takes longer to recognize the hindrances in the metta practice, but it's the same old hindrances that you get in the Vipassana practice. They're not different. And we've talked a lot already about that it's important to shift to the mindfulness practice when the hindrances come up. So you've, you've heard that a lot, and I won't emphasize it. Uh, we can't always keep them at bay. And I think that 
where the metta practice and the vipassana practice intersect in terms of developing understanding of how life is. In the metta practice, there are the low energy times. There are the, the concentration low. And at that time, we have to open up to life as it is. That there are times where there isn't as much energy. There's low energy. Uh, the concentration isn't as strong. And that that's okay. That that's part of life the ups and downs. There's a poem by William Carlos Williams from the Ivy Crown. He says, Just as the nature of briars is to tear flesh, I have proceeded through them. Keep the briars out, they say. You cannot live and keep free of briars. We can't do the metta practice and be free of the hindrances, there are times when they'll come in, and that's okay. We, in life, we can't be free of pain or low energy, uh, but through the mindfulness, we learn how to accept them, to understand them, to let them come and go. <laughs> so with the Vipassana, you learn how to let sounds come and go, just as they are. We learn how to let the breath come and go, just as it is. And then we learn how to let sleepiness come and go, just as it is, as it is. Aversion, attachment, which Carol talked a lot about last night. So we learn how to experience an emotion or, or a hindrance deeply and fully, but also not to be lost in it with detachment. What I want to emphasize really tonight is how the concentration does keep the hindrances at bay. You know, what is it that uh, happens that allows us to be free from the hindrances at times? And in a few of my groups, I mentioned this already, but we've, there are five what are called donic factors that happen both in Vipassana and Metta. They're the same. And they're concentration factors. Jhana really means a deep unification of the mind. And so donic factors are factors that help unite the mind. The donic factors help us stay firmly anchored in the present moment. And the mind, as they become stronger, becomes more supple and buoyant. So just remember that these happen in both practices. Uh, the Pali word for concentration is samadhi. And it merely means collected, focused, unified. In a moment of a metta jhana, we're free from the hindrances. There's that feeling of seclusion and protection. And as these metta jhanic factors ripen, there's more and more freedom in the heart, freedom in the mind. Different uh, of different ones, you know, these different factors can ripen at different times. So sometimes the first one will be ripening, or the third, or the fifth. The Pali word for the first jhanic factor is vitaka, and it means connecting. And I'll just go through them first and then describe them more uh, completely. So vitaka means connecting, and it overcomes sleepiness. 
And the second one is vichara, that's the Pali word, vichara, and it means sustaining, and it overcomes doubt. The third one is called rapture, uh, the Pali word is piti, and it overcomes aversion. The fourth is, the Pali word is sukha, it means happiness, and it overcomes restlessness. And the fifth is tranquility, ikagata is the Pali word, and it overcomes the attachment to sensual pleasure, the clinging to sensual pleasure. It's not necessary to remember the Pali words. We, we, taka is the aiming, the mind, that I describe, like aiming toward the breath, or aiming toward a sound, or aiming toward the metta object that we're doing. So the vitaka or connecting is what directs the mind to the object. In this case, it directs the mind to the metta object and to the phrases. And so vitaka awakens the mind, it opens it, it refreshes the mind. And it, because it invigorates the mind, it overcomes the sloth and torpor, it overcomes sleepiness. And the heaviness that you experience with the sleepiness is replaced by lightness with this jhanic factor. So you can think of this jhanic factor as energizing. And in, in the application of this aiming the mind, aiming the mind, aiming the mind, uh, there's less and less resistance to effort or energy. The second vichara, which is the sustaining uh, there's the aiming and then the sustaining, uh, allows for the continuity. So it's not just happening once in one mind moment, but it allows us to stay focused. And it, it's, it helps anchor the mind in the present. It, it's decisive. And so we'll feel more immersed in what's happening. And with the metta practice, I think you'll have the sense sometimes of being able to get the feeling of the person, to get the phrase, and suddenly you'll feel much more in them. You know, you'll, you'll feel like you're in the phrase and that you mean it. This is uh, the vichara. You're me- able to mean and understand it. It's similar in Vipassana where uh, there's a description of Uh, most of the time our attention is like a cork floating downstream. It's on the surface. And sometimes there'll be a feeling of sinking or being immersed in what's happening in the present moment. It's like a stone being thrown into the water. You're immersed. So when you feel that sense of the, the person you're doing or the being and the phrases coming together and you feel that sense of meaning them, you'll feel more in in the practice, immersed. That being immersed overcomes doubt. It overcomes confusion or indecision. And the, the, um, the indecision is transformed into a confidence and clarity. And so you can think of vichara as immersion and investigation. It brings even more light than the first, the vitaka. The third jhanic factor is rapture, or piti. Because of the ability to 
stay continuous with this aiming and sustaining the first two. Over time, there can be this experience of interest in the object. I think you'll again have that sense where you might be slogging along for a long time, but then there's a sense of a sudden interest in the person you're doing or an interest in yourself, whatever interest in the bird you're doing, whatever it is, there's a shift from just being able to say the phrases, mean them, but then there's a kind of deepening interest, uh, sometimes rapture in Vipassana jhanas are called a joyful interest. Uh, but this, <clears throat> in, it's like the interest is engaged. The mind then becomes undistracted by aversion. There's no hold for the anger. It, it just doesn't stick in the mind because there's this joyful engagement or interest. In the Vipassana, it would be a joyful interest in what's happening. In the metta practice, it's a joyful interest in, in who we're doing or the being that we're doing. It could be all beings, but it's an interest. So there's the aiming, the, the sustaining, there's the joyful engagement. Those are the first three. And then the fourth is called sukha, or happiness. We feel quite secluded when the sukha, or the, the happiness, is happening. And I think of it as a kind of sweetness. It's kind of like eating a chocolate. You know, it's, it's very sweet. And this contentment, this deep contentment, intensifies this uh, undistracted mind. It intensifies the refreshment. So the whole body and mind will feel deeply connected. It affects the whole body and mind. There's like a um, deep pervading ease of well-being. There's a, that it's called happiness because we feel so, so secluded and the happiness is coming from feeling so protected from the hindrances. And there's a peacefulness that uh, we feel even when there's unpleasant physical sensation or unpleasant mental states because one isn't pulled into them, one's secluded. And this fourth jhanic factor, sukha or happiness, it overcomes restlessness because this ease and comfort overcomes any kind of worry or agitation. The fifth jhanic factor is called ikagata, or it's um, tranquility. And there's a sense of being very still. The mind feels really unified. And it's like feeling totally anchored. And there's a deep centering of the attention on whatever object we're, we're with, ourselves and another, another being. So there's a feeling of completeness, feeling of uh, not being distracted at all. And there's no sense of lack. There's no sense of feeling fragmented. So there's this one-pointedness. And uh, this overcomes attachment to pleasant states because this completeness. There's no place, uh, like with the aversion, with the rapture, there's no place for the anger to hold. With this sense of completeness, there's no place for the stickiness of the attachment to take hold. Uh, So even though at other times when there's not this concentration, we'll feel a stickiness with a fantasy or a pleasant sound, 
or whatever, when there's that sense of deep tranquility, that stickiness can't affect us because the ease is so complete. The, these five jhanic factors transform consciousness. They, they transform ordinary consciousness uh, into a deeply unified consciousness that's, that's very much at rest, but it's alive, it's dynamic. So it's at rest, but it's not a, it, the mind isn't asleep. It's the opposite. It's very awake. So there's a lot of reasons for doing the metta practice. And in terms of just this concentration, uh, concentration is a really important um, part of our spiritual journey. You can just sense in hearing the words of contentment, ease, interest, light, uh, it really helps to develop these jhanic factors uh, because they help us be in the present moment with this ease. And the concentration is healing for the whole body and mind. There are times when you'll be sitting there and if you feel concentrated, you won't want to move because it'll feel so healing to be so deeply um, concentrated. The reason that the Brahma Viharas that we're doing, the loving kindness, and then we'll be doing the Karuna, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, mudita, and upeka, equanimity, the next days, they're called divine abodes. Brahma means divine, Vihara means home. And one of the reasons is because this feeling of being so um, content and secluded is a divine home. William Blake said that gratitude is heaven itself. And this is, this is this, often when we taste that feeling of the ability for us to be able to, for us to be able to even aim the attention and sustain it, you'll feel really concentrated. Even if you do it in one moment, if you can, if you can have a, some moments where you say those phrases and really mean it, and you feel in it, you know you'll feel wonderful. It's, it's, and there's always usually a sense of gratitude after we feel that concentration, uh, a thankfulness that it's possible for us in this human realm to experience that. So many of you are tasting different aspects of these jhanic factors. So I wanted to mention them because it helps us to understand how the concentration happens. It's kind of scientific in a way. It's kind of um, mapped out. What's important is to see that when we kind of sit down, and whether we're walking or sitting or whenever we're doing this practice, just see if you can aim the attention and connect and sustain it. If you can't, it's okay. You know, you don't have to get out the whip and, you know, think that it's because you're not pushing or working hard enough. Just keep checking in and seeing if you can do it. And there'll be times when the energy will be strong enough and you can, and other times you won't be able to, and both are okay. Keep going 
Um, when we can't, like Carol talked about last night, there'll be times when we'll feel like we hit the wall. That's the briars in that poem I read. And then we just do the mindfulness practice. And you're developing understanding doing the mindfulness practice, so you really can't lose. <laughs> you know, there's no, no problem if you can't get that aiming and connecting. I found that doing the loving-kindness practice, that it wasn't just that I was doing loving-kindness. I was developing a lot of understanding every time I had to do the mindfulness practice. So I found that they both really were supportive of each other and complementary. Also, in terms of uh, melting the barriers, it, it, the metta practice is described as breaking the barriers, that anytime we feel a sense of not being able to connect with ourselves or not being able to make that connection with another, we don't break the barrier with a battering ram. And I think culturally there's a tendency to kind of be violent or push ourselves rather than to understand and trust that process that the metta is what breaks the barrier. Or the understanding from the mindfulness practice breaks the barrier. And so anytime that we have to back off is, is that way of developing that, that metta. We back off to what's easy, which is melting the barrier rather than <laughs> pounding the barrier. Uh, so it's really, as you do it, I think you'll start to trust that process itself of trusting the, the backing off rather than feeling like it's some kind of um, failure. It's wise. So it's uh, something that we don't do with force, but with gentleness. Also, some people, you know, you can hear questions in the hall have been asking, well, like, what if the metta is strong, so strong that the words drop away? And so that's also a way to understand in the context of the jhanic factors that as one shifts into the rapture and the uh, sukha, the happiness and the tranquility, there are times when there's a sense of such deep concentration that the words will drop away. And then you just, you just hold that, and when you feel it drop, you bring in the words again. This is a quotation from Mayor Baba, and it's about the connection between this metta the, the feeling of the loving-kindness and the concentration, that, that real sense of quiet or tranquility that comes. He said, when a person is angry with another person, that person is removed from their heart. That's why the physical reaction is to shout. The greater the distance, the louder the shouting. But when individuals are in love, they speak softly, and when they are still further in love, no words are needed. And what's so wonderful about this practice is that you can feel that happening. You can feel that um, 
quietness and the need for less and less of the words and then that just failing of the, the boundary breaks. There's, there's no need for anything because there's, there's just that sense of union. And at that point, we really don't feel separate. And that, that is the truth. And when we'll uh, be feeling that gratefulness at that point because you know you've touched the truth. Sometimes people have the experience of the concentration without the metta feeling. So one can feel the sense of tranquility, for example, and not have the, the metta. Or you can feel the rapture and not have the metta. You can feel the happiness and not have the metta. So please try not to judge this. It can happen a lot of different ways. And, and just know and trust that there's, there's something happening, even when you think nothing's happening. Uh, there's so many ways it can happen. Sometimes um, we can have some rapture and none of the happiness or tranquility. Or you can have that aiming the attention, but not the ability to sustain it. You know, it's like they, it, there's all different ways the jhanic factors happen and are ripening. And it takes a lot of patience to just let it unfold as it unfolds for us. But different jhanic factors can be ripening at different times, even if we're working with aiming, aiming, aiming. Uh, that's a lot of it. And it, it's ripening that jhanic factor. Also, I've given you a kind of model for them, but to know that it's um, ultimately a kind of um, important not to limit our experience to this. I see being on a meta retreat like being at a banquet, and we get all these different (laughs) foods. Some of them we don't like, some of them we like. Sometimes we get you know, turnip instead of chocolate mousse. <laughs> uh, but turnip can be very uh, nourishing. So it's a kind of feast. <laughs> and there are different ways that we respond to the experience of loving kindness. And so you can see that as different aspects of the feast. So t- sometimes we can feel very spacious, but maybe not have any metta feeling. And sometimes we might feel very uh, joyful and there'll be tears, tears come of joy. Or there can be a a quiet happiness or it could be a poignancy, um, crying with gratitude or, you know, this just can be this quiet, no happiness, just quiet, calm. Uh, so if we limit this experience of metta to tears of joy, it would negate all those other experiences. And I haven't mentioned all of them. There's many ways that this uh, response to the loving-kindness practice happens. So try to have a, a vision of it that can include all of the ways that we respond to the feast and what we get. We don't have to limit the experience of metta to any one response. I did a little self-retreat at home this, this year, and I came upon a poem that affected me a lot. It might just be me. Um, 
It's called, My Heart Has Become Capable of Every Form. And it's um, a name that I can't quite read. It's, this, it's from the 13th century, Ibn al-Arabi. Uh, and I don't know where it's from. And this person said, My heart has become capable of every form. It is a pasture for gazelles and a retreat for Christian monks and a temple for idols and the pilgrim's Kaaba and the tables of the Torah and the book of the Koran. I follow the religion of love, whichever way his camels take. My religion and my faith is the true religion. My heart has become capable of every form. To me, that's, that's the, the vastness of the response to metta. You know, when the heart is that open, everything is one's religion. And so there's that question, can we learn to love everything? Love tells me I'm everything, the rough and the hard, the night and the day, the crying and the laughter. You know, can we, can we love it all? Years ago, at the end of a three-month retreat here, we had a Zen master come, and the student asked him, what is love? And he said back, what is love? So the student said again, you know, what is love? And he just said back, what is love? So the student tried one more time <laughs> to get it, you know, uh, something rational out of the Zen master. And he said, well, what is love? And he said, what is love? And it was just like he just totally mirrored that question with this warmth. and being in the moment with it. And I felt that it was so beautiful and deep to feel just that ability to mirror with the warmth. In a way, that's where the Vipassana practice and metta come together. And we start to see in doing the loving-kindness practice that the love isn't just the self-centered pleasure that we get from any person or thing. You know, that it's much deeper than that. So unconditional love isn't just about pleasure. And we have to ask certain questions like, well, what do we love? What do we love in a person? Do we love greed, hatred, and delusion? You know, what is it that we love? Do we love somebody only when they're being pleasurable for us? And in some ways, when we start wondering about these things, we usually have to go to a place of courage, because I think love is courage. It it requires us to be able to face that human beings have all these different aspects, not just pleasant aspects. And it takes a lot of courage to be able to open to and unlove the unpleasant aspects of a person as well. And the the practice will require of us to go deep if we're willing to try to um, touch this unconditional love. 
often we find that we tend to be in love with love. Uh, So much of the time we're wanting unconditional love from others. And if if we don't start understanding that we can develop it for ourselves and others, it's a very fragile world we live in if we're dependent on unconditional love from others. Uh, because it isn't always so dependable. You know, it would be nice if we could depend on it from others, but it's not, the human world isn't that dependable. Human beings do have aversion, attachment, delusion. But we can start to develop a very dependable uh, loving kindness for ourselves. And then when it comes from the outside, great. When it doesn't come, we don't fall apart. We have the ability to feel it for ourselves. But there's so many questions that can come up around love. There's a writer named C.S. Lewis uh, that said, why love? when it hurts so much to lose it. And I think that's really one of the hardest things for us in life is, is the sense that, you know, why bother? <laughs> because th- there is that fragility to it in the human world. It's never that, there's no guarantee that a person will always yield this unconditional love. When I was doing a dear friend during this practice, um, I didn't have any sense when I was first doing her that in many ways that she had, had she had a lot of aversion, but I didn't I hadn't really seen that that clearly. And when I would be doing walking meditation, I'd kind of place her image to the place where I would walk, and I would be doing all this metta for her, and I kept wanting her to get less angry. You know, I, and, and I wasn't conscious, but I'd find myself over days with this person. I'd be thinking, you know, well, after all this metta I'm sending you, the least you can do is smile. You know, I was just kind of pouring out all this metta. And, and I started getting angrier and angry at her for not, you know, smiling and looking happy. And it was kind of, you know, you can see how you get involved in all these dramas in your head around this person that isn't even there. Uh, But it was a real mirror for me because I started to see, oh, I'm not being very accepting of how this person is. And, And then I started being able to see, well, you know, I'm not that accepting of myself when I'm angry. And, and see, as you do the practice, that be, it became a whole mirror for me to understand my relationship to my own aversion. And as I was doing it, I started to see, as I was starting to accept my own, I was able to accept hers. And that's the difference between the conditional love. I would do days of it, and most of the time, it had that condition on it. And as I went through that process of understanding, you know, what's, you know, I just saw the barrier, and it was so painful. And at times I just had to drop her, you know, I'd have to go back to somebody else, you know, the benefactor category, because it got so painful for me to see how I was relating to her. And then slowly I started being able to feel that unconditional love without needing her to be happy. 
ultimately both the metta practice and the vipassana practice bring us to that question, well, who am I? What is life? What is death? Stephen and I went to a Hopi, the Hopi reservation last year, and I read a few things about their understanding of the cosmos. And one of the things that I was really touched by is their understanding of their relationship to uh, like the mother energy in the universe and father energy in the universe. So for them, the mother has two aspects. Uh, She is a giver of life, and she's the corn mother and the mother earth. And then the father has two aspects. He also gives life, and he's the son and the creator. So both the mother and father have this aspect of giving life. And they believe that these universal energies, these universal father energy, mother energy, are our real parents. Which is very profound. So although we have human parents, uh, they are just the vehicle or the instrument through which this mother and father energy manifests. When a child was born, a corn mother, which was a perfect ear of corn, it would have to be a perfect ear of corn, would be placed beside the baby for 20 days, and the baby would be kept in darkness for 20 days. And during that time, there would be cornmeal painted all around the room in the house, on the walls, on the ceilings. And the meaning of that would be that they, they were creating a spiritual home for the child as well as a temporal home on this earth. So many different rituals would be done for the child in this darkness and on the 20th day before light happened in the dark, while still dark, all of the aunts arrive at the house carrying a corn mother, a perfect ear of corn, and they all want to be the child's godmother. The mother and these aunts uh, take the corn mother and pass it from the navel to the head and give, each give the, ch- the child a name and they send it metta, wishing it health, happiness. And then just as the sun rises in the east, they take the child outside and offer the child to the sun. And then they send more metta, wishing the child happiness and health. And at that point, the child is considered born. The child isn't considered born until that point. And at that point, it's acknowledged that the child belongs to that family, but most importantly, to the earth and to the universe. Then at age seven or eight, the child is initiated into these two aspects of uh, the, the mother, the giver of life, the father, the giver of life. And so as they grow up, they uh, are expected to have more and more allegiance to the universe rather than to their family or even to their tribe. They know they're a member of those, those tribes and families, but their um, devotion, the devotion starts becoming much larger to these universal energies. I don't know about you, but that wasn't quite my experience. (laughs) 
Instead of a corn mother, I had whiskey bottles all around me. <laughs> and recently I've been thinking, well, at least it was a grain, you know, there was corn, <laughs> whiskey, they're kind of similar. Um, <laughs> and I think that I'm just relating this because it, you kind of have to have some humor with the way that in our culture we're uh, taught about mother and father, there's not always this uh, re- development of a relationship in this way. And I think because we don't get this conscious relationship to these universal energies, our relationship to the personal parents, it's much more fragile. We don't have that sense of deep connection with the earth mother, corn mother, father, and as both father and mother as being nourishing and givers of life. So that this hopey way of seeing the universe brings about a sense of deep reassurance or deep trust in being interconnected with the universe. The metta practice is very helpful with this. I think it really heals this cultural lack and that the merit of practice again is a mirror and in that practice itself we develop this interconnectedness we develop the understanding of this relationship with all beings we can touch it and through this understanding then we can relax more into our experience it really helps us to be mindful My beginning of this talk, love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. This is how these practices come together. And that sense of our life flowing between the two. Just before Stephen and I left uh, Hawaii this time, it's a two-month trip. We're away from home for two months. And when it's a long time, there's a lot to do before we leave. So I make a long list of things to do. I don't know if you do that, but I make these long lists. I write them out, all the things I have to do. And it was, I get these lists that it's impossible. You know, it's totally impossible to do the amount of things I have on the list. So I set myself up for this incredible stress just looking at the list. <laughs> and so for the last few days I have a list that I'm running around with and I was in traffic and I was impatient and I was late. And I'm at a traffic light, just tense. And this van pulled up next to me. And it had two men in the front. And they had their windows down. I had my windows down. I was just totally uh, not in the present moment. (laughs) And I guess I looked it. (laughs) So this man uh, rolled down the window. And I just had this cynical reaction of expecting the worst. I thought, oh, no. What are these guys up to? And they both gave me this big smile. And one of the men said to me, I hope you have a nice day. (laughs) (laughs) And it was so so simple. It, It wasn't like they did anything major. It was so easy. But in that moment, I just relaxed. It was, it's, it was so nice, and that's, that's metta. And I, I think that it's so rare that we get these experiences in our culture, and it's so simple. We can do that for each other. 
It was a really wonderful experience. Upandita describes metta as moist, sticky metta. He says, if a material is dry, it is not easy for it to stick to another material. But two pieces of damp material, when brought into contact, quite easily stick together. Similarly, if there is no moist, sticky metta in the hearts of sentient beings, it can be very difficult to relate to one another. And the moist, sticky metta is essential for us to be able to relate to one another. In that moment, when that man said, have a nice day, it was like there was that feeling. It's, it's a sticky, moist uh, moisturizer. And it really makes life worth living. When I was a cook here at IMS a long time ago, a teacher named Ajahn Chah, a forest monk from Thailand, came. And I used to bring him his food in the yoga room. He would be sitting there. And every day I'd bring him his food, and he would ask me a question. It's something like, you know, what is the difference between happiness and peace? That was one of the questions he'd asked me many times. And I'd just get really serious, and I'd, I'd try to think of an answer. And I'd come up with some profound answer. Well, this is happiness, and this is peace. And then he'd tease me mercilessly, just just mercilessly, and I'd leave feeling like I didn't know the answer. And then the next day I'd come in, what's the difference between happiness and peace? And then I'd get really into this great profound answer, and he'd just tease me and make... I just could never get the answer right. And I kept trying to get the answer right until finally one day I brought him in lunch, and I realized that wasn't the point. He wasn't uh, at all trying to get me to get into a right answer. He was trying to help me be okay with not knowing the answer and to be willing to stand in that question. Just let it be okay that I didn't know. And at that point, it became more play. I could go in there and and he was very intimidating when he was like that. And it was hard to learn how to banter and play and not have to have a right answer, not to have to know. This is partly what we learn in the Vipassana practice and the metta, but I think mostly it becomes more poignant in life. We never really know what's going to happen. That's the truth of things. That's something we all share, this vulnerability. In the West, I think there's a sense of, because we don't have this container of metta, It really scares us when we don't know. Uh, So anytime you feel like there's that sense that you don't know and you don't understand, it can be so scary. Remember that you can just bring that metta in and there'll be that feeling of that it's okay. It's okay not to know. We never know. Let's sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.